You are welcome tonight to ATC 109. And what we are looking at tonight is understanding covenants and membership covenants, commitments. Understanding covenant and covenant membership commitments. Amen. Tonight, we will be looking at covenant. What is covenant? And um, which will lay a foundation on understanding membership covenant commitments. And really, next, next week, we will be dealing more with membership covenant commitments. But tonight, we zero in on covenant. How many people here have heard the word covenant before? Do you know what covenant is? What is covenant? A divine promise. What is covenant? What say? An agreement, a seal. Amen. Before we conclude this class tonight, we have five objectives that must be accomplished. One, you must be able to appreciate what a covenant is all about and the elements of a covenant. What makes a covenant a covenant? Two, you should be able to understand the two categories of covenant and what is God's view or God's perspective to covenants. Three, you should be able to appreciate the specific characteristics of divine covenants and how it is established. Four, you should be able to appreciate the reasons for making a covenant and covenantal responsibilities. Five, you should be able to understand the Priest Chapel Christian Fellowship membership covenant. Amen. So, covenant, the word covenant, means a mutual agreement. When you look at the dictionary definition of covenant, we define it as this. Say, mutual, a mutual agreement, a mutual understanding agreement, a solemn undertaking, or a legal contract, which is legally binding, or a signed agreement in writing between two or more parties with respect to a promise or a commitment. What does that mean? For instance, when you enter into a car lot and you requested the car dealer to give you a car so that you can be making monthly payments and you sign a lease, you have gone into a covenant with the car dealer. Does that make sense to you? And it is legally binding. If you default on your payments, I'm sure there's a clause in what in that contract agreement you signed that dealer is at liberty to repossess your car. Does that make sense? So that is a covenant. So it's a contract. It's a promise, a commitment. You see, in biblical times, when we talk about covenant, covenant involves a promise. It involves faithfulness. It involves loyalty. Even unto death. And because of that, people do not lightly enter into a covenant. In the times of the scripture, if you tell somebody, come and sign a contract with me, they will be reluctant to sign a contract with you. And if they sign with you, they go into it with all seriousness. Because their word is as good as their covenant bond. When people say yes in the whole times, they mean yes. And when people say no, they mean no. Amen. But when we look at today's world, covenant, men has become covenant breakers, according to what the scripture says in Romans chapter 1 verse 31. We have become truth breakers. We break covenant with impunity. 
it doesn't make anything, it doesn't mean anything to many people to break or to breach contracts that they sign with other people. We can see that even national covenants, like the American Constitution, is a national covenant. It's a covenant that was enacted between the 50 states that make up the American nation. That this is how our nation should be governed. When this is done, this is what should result. It's a covenant. And we can see that all over the world today, even national covenants have been breached. Politicians are finding ways to circumvent the covenant. Amen. Even when you look at the marriage covenant, marriage is a covenant. You can see how marriage covenants have been so attacked that now divorce is more than 50%. That means every one of every two marriages breaks up because people are breaching and destroying covenants. Amen. So that means covenant has lost its meaning. But God's God has not changed his mind or his perspective about covenant. So that's the reason why we are teaching this class. So that you know what kind of covenant you have with God so that you don't become a covenant breaker. Does that make sense to you? Amen. You see, in the body of Christ, true believers are in covenant relationship first with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, then with one another. You are when you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life today as my personal Lord and Savior. What have you done? You have just caught a covenant with Jesus. What is the covenant? Simply put, you become Lord of my life. And I give you my sins. And Jesus said, Well, I will take you to heaven when you die. Does that make sense to you? Covenant. What makes you sure? <laughs> what guarantee do you have that really, if you die, you will go to heaven? That is assuming that you live a holy life, a righteous life. Why are you so sure that Jesus will keep his word by taking you to heaven? The reason is because covenant. When he says he will take you to heaven, believe it, he will take you to heaven. As long as you meet the conditions, the requirements of a covenant. Does that make sense to you? And when we come together as body of believers, breaking bread in holy communion, it is a sign of the covenant bonding between us. Does that make sense to you? Amen. As we go on, you're going to understand what we mean by covenant. Now, let's look at the elements or the constituents of covenant. What makes a covenant a covenant? For a covenant to be a covenant or even an ordinary contract, you need about eight elements to be in place for there to be a covenant. One, there must be a purpose for the covenant. Can you imagine if somebody just walks up to you on the street and gives you a paper, says this is a contract, can you sign? Will you sign? No. you find out, why do I need to sign? There must be a purpose to a covenant. Amen. God is a God of purpose. We learned last week that God does not do anything without purpose. Right? God has a lot of covenant with us as believers, as his creation. But God does not cut covenant with us without a purpose in mind. Take for instance, we look 
we can see God cutting covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God called Abraham. He said, Abraham, leave your people, leave your father and mother, leave your people and go to a land that I will show you. And God began to say, if you obey me, he began to cut a covenant with him, I will bless you. And through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. He that blesses you is blessed. And he that curses you is cursed. Right? Why did God call Abraham and cut a covenant with him? God has a purpose in mind. And the purpose why God cut covenant with Abraham is because God was looking for a man through whom, through whose lineage he, can, he will bring in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? God was looking for a man, a righteous man, through whom he would bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. So he found a man and he cut a covenant with him. So when God was cutting a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, really what God had in mind is Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? Because God said, even God promised him that if you obey me, through you I will bring blessings, I will bring salvation to every family on earth. Does that make sense to you? So there is a purpose in mind. So a covenant is not a covenant without a purpose. Another element of covenant is there must be covenant parties. What does that mean? Two or more persons or group of people will constitute a covenant. Amen. But let me say also, you can make a covenant with yourself. The Bible says in the book of Job, Job chapter 31, verse 1. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not behold a maid. Let me put it in American English. I have made a covenant promise to myself that I will not look at a blonde. <laughs> Let me put it in a simpler term. I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not behold a beautiful lady lustfully. That's Job 31 verse 1. That's for you free of charge for the guys. You can make covenants with yourself. Amen. So basically, for a covenant to be, there must be at least two people involved in a covenant. Or two groups of people involved in a covenant. For instance, it could be a covenant between God and man. It could be a covenant between a man and a woman. As in marriage. It could be a covenant between friends. Two people must be involved in a covenant. Amen. And like I said, you can make a covenant with yourself. Hallelujah. And what happens is that when two or more people are making a covenant with each other, they may or may not be of equal strength. Alright? For instance, when America when the American president was visited by the president of Bermuda Islands. It's a very tiny island just outside of New York to the, to the west of New York. It's a very tiny island. Now that president of that nation said, on behalf of my country, Bermuda Highlands, we want to sign a trade pact, which is like a covenant with America. Is that okay? Now, America is the strongest nation in the world right now right? And Bermuda is a tiny nation. Bermuda cannot stand America. Military strength, 
economy wise you understand but still despite that america is stronger and bermuda is very weak they're able to make covenant with each other at the same time when russia was still russia when when the soviet union was still soviet union america and soviet union were the two world powers and we can say that they have equal strength right Unless as long as they have an agreement with each other, and they do have agreement with each other, we won't use nuclear weapons. All right? So that would be an agreement between parties that have equal strength. Does that make sense to you? So there could be a covenant between two parties. One is stronger than the other, or they have equal strength. For instance, God has a covenant with man. God is stronger than us. Does that make sense? But the point we are trying to say is that there must be covenanting parties. And what happened is that there is a commonwealth that is established when a covenant is made or entered into. What does that mean? If I'm cutting a covenant with you, you have wealth. You have resources. I have wealth. I have resources. My wealth and your wealth belongs to both of us. Does that make sense? Assuming I have $1,000 and you have $1,000, then our commonwealth is $2,000. Does that make sense? Whatever I have belongs to you, and whatever you have belongs to me. And that's what happens in marriage. The Bible says, and the two shall become one. Whatever belongs to the man now belongs to the woman as well. So when covenant is made, then a commonwealth is established. Amen. Now, another constraint of a covenant is terms or condition of a covenant. For a covenant to be a covenant, there must be terms or there must be conditions. And it is the terms or the conditions that describe the responsibility of the covenanting parties. And it becomes the yardstick by which we measure if the covenant parties are faithful to the agreement. Does that make sense to you? For instance, you go into a car dealership and you said, I want a Lexus. Say, fine. The Lexus is $23,000. And we want you to be making a payment of $600 over the next six years, assuming. Right? So the condition is you're going to be paying $300 every two weeks. Condition. If there are no conditions, I can decide not to make a payment for the next 12 months. And if the dealer asks me, say, no problem. I have a six-year plan. I will pay you before the end of six years. <laughs> Does that make sense? But the dealer wants to be sure that you are going to pay. And there's a reasonable term that is put on the contract paper. Make $300 payment every two weeks. Is that okay? And that term or condition of that contract becomes the yardstick to measure if I'm faithful, if I'm keeping my own part of the covenant. Does that make sense to you? Also, another element or constant of the covenant is benefits. There must be benefits in the covenant. Amen. Nobody goes into a contract that does not benefit them. Except that person is a dummy. <laughs> so God does not expect you to come into covenant agreement with him if you don't have any benefit coming out of it. So benefits are the blessings or the addition that accrues to you to the covenant parties because of their covenant relationships. They were able to draw from the commonwealth. 
Does that make sense? They are able to draw from the commonwealth. Let me give you a very good example. My country, Nigeria, was colonized by Britain or the United Kingdom. Now, my country is independent now. We have self-government. What Britain, what the British did, some people call it neocolonialization. That means they are still colonizing us in another form. They formed an organization. They call it Commonwealth of Nations. And it includes Britain and all their former colonies. And what they do is that they request every member nation to contribute a certain amount to the Commonwealth Office every year. Let's assume that there are 200 countries in the Commonwealth organization. And every country is contributing $1 million every year. So at the end of the year, of the contribution year, the Commonwealth Office has $200 million. Right? So what they do is this. They have different development programs that the Commonwealth Office sponsors. For instance, they can decide that this year, for the next five years, we're going to be developing the there are many countries or many areas of the world that they don't have water. Is that okay? And they decide that, okay, we're going to take a country in East Africa and we're going to develop their water system. And maybe the water system for them to develop is going to cost $50 million. Right? But that country contributed only $1 million. But the Commonwealth Office will take $50 million and they will develop the water system of that country. What has happened? That poor country has drawn from the commonwealth to meet their, their own needs. Does that make sense to you? You came to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are full of sin. You are weak. You are sick. Is that okay? But when you came to God, God made his resources available to you. Divine health, divine healing, divine prosperity, divine favor, divine promotion. Now that you are in in a covenant relationship with God, the commonwealth of God has been made available to you so you can draw from it. You can draw divine healing. You can receive divine healing. You can receive divine provision. You can receive divine protection. Does that make sense to you? So benefits accrue to you when you are in a covenant relationship. Does that make sense to you? Amen. Another element of a covenant is that there must be penalties. What does this mean? These are the sanctions that are attracted if covenant parties, if they break their own part of the covenant agreement. Really, if there are no penalties for breaking an agreement, people will be free to break agreements. For instance, if you make a late payment on your car, they can tell you to add 20%. Or maybe you have a credit card payment and you make a late payment, they increase your APR. Maybe from 10% to 25% APR. There's a penalty. The reason why they put the penalty, they want to be faithful. By making you pay for it. Does that make sense to you? So there is always a penalty. And when we talk about divine covenant that we are talking about, when somebody contravenes the terms of a covenant, it attracts judgment. And the judgment comes in form of curses. Does that make sense to you? And usually, you can, you know, when, maybe you don't know, if you have a credit card bill 
and you are late on your credit payment and they increase your APR. Maybe after a few months, if you are faithful again, you can call up your credit card company and ask them, please, can you take a look at my credit history with you guys? Yes, in, in uh, July last year, I was late on my payment. But if you look at my record from that time, I have been faithful. Please, can you lower my interest rate? And the guy might say, no, we can't do it. You can say, please, can I speak with your superior officer or your supervisor? And maybe they put the supervisor on the line, and you talk to the supervisor, you plead with him or her, and say, okay, we lower your interest rate from 25% to 15%. But be faithful. Say, thank you. That means, what have you done? You have appeased the person who is inflicting the penalty for you breaking the terms of the covenant. The same way, when you break the terms of a divine covenant, you can appease the wrath of God by repentance or when justice is done. Does that make sense to you? How do you appease? You say, Lord, I'm very sorry. When you repent genuinely from your heart, then God can turn away the judgment that's supposed to come upon your life. Amen. When you get home, you can read uh, the different penalties that accrues when people break a covenant. Another element of a covenant is sacrifice. A covenant will always involve sacrifice. In fact, it is sacrifice that empowers a covenant. That means if there's no sacrifice in a covenant, then it's not really a covenant. If there's nothing you are giving up in a covenant relationship, really, it's not a covenant. We have a covenant with God. What did God give into that covenant relationship? He gave his son. And what are you giving back? You gave your life, I hope. <laughs> you gave your life, you gave your time, you gave everything you have. And God gave everything he had, his son. Amen. God spoke prophetically through David in Psalms 50 verse 5. He said, Gather unto me all my saints who have made covenant with me by sacrifice. That means that anytime you make a sacrifice for the kingdom, you are more or less cutting a, another level of covenant with God. When you, made a, when you make any kind of sacrifice in your life for the kingdom, God sees you as his covenant partner. Because sacrifice empowers a covenant. Amen. Another thing about a covenant is that a covenant must have a time frame. Alright? A covenant must have a time frame. A covenant must have an expiring date. It could either be a temporary covenant that is based on maybe months, weeks, or a number of years. Or it could be what we call a permanent covenant that means until death do us part like in the marriage covenant. Or it could be an eternal covenant that means even after you have died on this earth, the covenant continues. Now, the covenant we have with God is eternal. It is in this present world and in the world to come. All right? But a marriage covenant is 
upon as long as the covenant parties are alive. But once one of the parties dies, it terminates a marriage covenant. All right? When you make a covenant with your car dealer to get, get you a car and you are making payment, the day you complete your payment, you terminate that covenant. Does that make sense to you? So a covenant has a time frame. And our covenant with God is eternal. It has an eternal time frame. So it's beneficial. Lastly, what makes a covenant a covenant? There must be a seal. A seal is like your signature. A sign. Something to remind you of your covenant commitment. For instance, we used to make this joke back home in Nigeria. You know, when, when maybe there's a beautiful sister in church, and maybe the sister is engaged to be married, but not yet married. And maybe there are some brothers who just came to church, and they are looking at her in a way that, sis, I'm interested in you. Maybe if she's talking with those group of brothers, you will see that sister, they will begin to use their hands to, to display. What they are trying to do is that, look here, I'm engaged. Don't, don't even think about it. <laughs> because I have a ring. That signifies that maybe that sister is married. This ring is a seal of the covenant relationship I have with my wife. It's like the signature of our married life. Anytime it reminds me, oh, I have somebody alright? And anytime somebody looks at me, they will be looking at my hand, whether I have a wedding band. And that tells them, don't go there. This person is married. Does that make sense? So, a covenant must have a seal. Before you, your dealer can allow you to drive the car out of the car lot, he tells you to sign. Put your signature. Amen. So, having said all this about what makes a covenant a covenant, we have a better understanding of a covenant. So let's go on and talk about categories of covenants. We have two broad categories of covenants. We have covenants between man and man. And we have the second category of covenant, which is the covenant between God and man. The covenant between men could be a treaty or an alliance, as we saw in Scripture. When you get home, there are so many Scriptures that are in your outline today. Please, I want to beseech you to go home and review each of those scriptures. It will help you to understand better what we're talking about. Amen. So we have constitutional ordinances between maybe kings and their subjects. We could have an agreement or a pledge to do something. We could have an alliance of friendship like we have between David and Jonathan. And we could have an alliance of marriage between a man and a woman. That's between men. Then we have the alliance between God and man. There could be an alliance of friendship. You can, be, you can become a friend to God. God called Abraham his friend. And in the book of John chapter 15, verse 14 verse, uh, to 15, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He said, I no longer call you servants, but henceforth I call you friends. Though those guys still know that he is their Lord and Savior, but Jesus said, you are my friends. 
So you can become a friend of God. Amen. You can become a friend of God. How do you become a friend of God? Jesus said, everything that my father has shown me, I have shown you. So when you know everything about the things of God, you can become a friend of God. Though you know he is still your God, your creator. You still give him the honor and the respect that is due him. But you say, you can say God is your friend. Amen. Then we also have covenants as divine constitutions or ordinances with signs and pledges. What is this book called? This book is called the Book of Covenants. If you look at this book, it has the whole covenant and the new covenant. Another word for covenant is testament. So we have the New Testament and we have the Old Testament. That means everything in this book is covenant, virtually so. Amen. So every do's and every don'ts, basically, in this world is covenant. When God says, if you do this, I will bless you. It becomes a covenant. You can bet your life on it. If you do it, God will bless you. And if God says, if you do this, I will punish you. You can bet your life on it. If you do it, it will punish you. Does that make sense to you? So, let's dig deeper. Now, let's look at how does God view covenants? What is God's perspective of covenant? We can see that from the beginning of creation, the power of God has been manifested and it is still being manifested through his covenant. What do, we, what do I mean by that statement? God, how many people believe that God is an omnipotent God? He can do anything and everything he wants to do. But have you noticed that God is not into showmanship? God is not into power show. Let me give you an instance. If I were God, there would be no reason why nobody should worship me. I wish, I would just, you know what I would do? In one night, I would make everybody in the whole world dream a dream of hell. I will make them dream that they go to hell. And in that dream, I will make them feel the, the heat of the fire. Such that when they wake up, they still feel the heat on their body. And I will tell them in their dream, if you don't bow down to me, I will kill you and I will send you to hell. <laughs> How many people believe that when you wake up, you will give your life to Jesus? But you would have, that would have been that I terrorized you. <laughs> Then I became a terrorist. But God is not a terrorist. Though the Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God is not a terrorist. God wants you to come to him on your own accord. He doesn't force you. Even after you have come to him, if you decide you don't want to be with him again, it won't force you. Now, what we are saying is this. God will not display his power except in response to a covenant. If you want God to show his power, then you have to remind him of a covenant 
where he promises to show his power. I will explain as we go on. You see, God governs the whole universe by covenant ordinances. Come with me to the book of Jeremiah and let's read some verses of scripture. Jeremiah chapter 33. Let me read from verse 20 to verse 26. Are you there? Jeremiah 33, 20 to 26. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measures, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Amen. What is God saying in this place? When you look at Genesis chapter 1, we saw in that place God began to create things. When God wanted to create day, he separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day and the darkness he called night, right? Then the Bible says he created two great lights. One to rule the day and the other one to rule the night, right? The greater light he called the sun, and the lesser light he called the moon. Following with me. But who could have understood that when God says, Son, be, rule the day, that God was making a covenant with the sun. And God says, Moon, be, rule the night, that God was making a covenant with the moon. So God is giving us a perspective here. When he says, sun, you will rule the day, moon, you will rule the night. That's a covenant. The sun will always rule the day as long as the earth remains. The moon will always rule the night as long as the earth remains. What does that imply? That implies that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God becomes his covenant bond. Does that make sense to you? That means that peradventure, God makes a mistake. God says something mistakenly. It's too late. He cannot take that word back. You can hold him to that word. And he will be committed to that word. Does that make sense to you? That is how God viewed covenant. When Jesus came and he said, Don't swear by the heavens. Because that's the throne of God. I said, don't swear by the earth. Because it is full stool of God. And he said, don't swear by your head. Because you cannot create a single hair. <laughs> What's he saying? He says, simply, let your yes be your yes. And let your no be your no. What is he saying? Be like your father in heaven. When God says yes, it is yes. And when God says no, it is no. 
Does that make sense? So God is saying, be a man or a woman of your words. Let me give you a very simple one. This class starts by 7. And you say, oh, I'll be there by 7. But you came by 7.05. You have broken a covenant. <laughs> That's how serious God views it. You have broken a covenant. But many people don't know it. They were strolling at 7.15 and they won't even have a remorse. They don't even know they have done anything wrong. Service starts by 7. If you come by 7.01, you are late. You should repent. That's how serious God views things of the kingdom. But you see, we don't take it that seriously. How many people here view what I just said the way I said it just now, before, before now? I'm late, I'm late. Listen, if I come to church late, like today, I came here seven on the dot, or some few seconds to seven, and on the way, I repented. Somebody held me up. But on the way, I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to have been here by 6.30. Right? I told you guys to be here by 7.45. Alright? I'm here by 7. So I'm late. Do I got here on the dot of 7? Do I was here before many of you came in? But still, as far as God is concerned, I'm late. I, I am supposed to operate by a higher standard. I'm supposed to be here by 6.30. Who told me to be here by 6.30? Nobody. I set it up myself. So if I set it up myself, it becomes a bond. <laughs> Can you see? That's the reason why some people, they set a standard, then they break it themselves. They say, never mind, it's me that set it, I can break it. No. When you set something in motion, where the kingdom of God is concerned, heaven reckons that you have just made a covenant with yourself and with God. So when you change the rules, hmm, you are changing something. So what did I do? I repented. I said, Lord, I'm sorry for coming late. I didn't give an excuse for my coming late, though I could give one. But my pastor used to say, don't give excuses for your sins or, sh or your shortcomings. And that's the reason why you won't overcome them. When you continually give an excuse why you are failing, that's the reason why you will keep failing. But if you say, Lord, I have no excuse. Please help me. Then, you are setting up yourself to be helped. Amen. That's just for you free of charge. So, God keeps his word. And his word, it doesn't break. And it is very important for us to know that God will not do anything except in response to a covenant. God will not do anything except in response to a covenant. The question is this. Why should God heal you? The only reason why God will heal you is because he promised you that I am the Lord, your physician. Why should God provide for you? The only reason why God will provide for you is because he promised you that I am the Lord, your shepherd. Does that make sense to you? 
Why should God protect you? The only reason why God will protect you is because he said that those that abide under the shadows of the Almighty, those that dwell in the secret place of the Almighty, shall abide under the shadows of the Most High. The only reason why God will do anything for you is because he promised that he will do it if some conditions are met. So if you want him to display his power on your behalf, then meet those conditions that he put in place for his power to show up. For instance, he said, give and it shall be given back unto you. Have you noticed that it is a miracle for somebody to give you something in this country? I discover where we came from. People are much more generous than what I see here. All oh, people are very, very generous. In fact, even unbelievers will take note that you are stingy. How much more believers? But here, people can't even part with $10, even if they have $100. God needs to speak to their heart <laughs> for them to part with some dollars. When was the last time God blessed you? God blessed you. We used to say something. He said, when God blesses you, let people around you know that God blessed you. That means if God bless me with a thousand bucks, I will bless my wife, I will bless my kids, not my them alone, I will bless my pastor. I can bless people in my Bible study. Say, bro, I will just give you, we call it the gospel handshake. And by the time I remove my hand, you are holding a hundred dollar bill. Say, be blessed. Say, wow. Hey, bro, what's this? Be blessed, bro. Amen. You see, that means, <laughs> that means if you want a miracle of provision, God is saying you must put your seed in the ground. So if you want God to display his power to produce, you must be a seed sower. Does that make sense? For instance, I have a car. I have a truck. I didn't buy any. And when I came to this country about four years ago, we needed a car. But we didn't have money to buy a car. And they told us you can get a car from a dealer and you can pay monthly. Though we believe God that we shouldn't have monthly payments. But after staying in, in, in the house for two weeks without having nobody to take us to church, we decide, okay, if our faith cannot produce <laughs> a free car, then let's go to a dealer. And the dealer said, you need a bank loan. You need to be financed. And I spoke to my bank and they said, I have no credit history. So they can't give me a bank loan. So we're back to the square one. Say, Lord, you said you are the Lord, our shepherd. We shall not lack anything good. And we placed a demand on that covenant. Though our faith was almost failing. <laughs> then a couple from out of town, about one hour drive away, divinely God connected us. And we told them about the situation. The bank said that we should need look for a, a co-signer. And we told them, they didn't see anything. They didn't do as if they would sign or they will not sign. Just have you found a car? I said, yes. So let's go and see the car. 
and went and see the car. How much is the car? The car did last $1,800. So I thought they were going to co-sign a loan for us. And the lady just brought out $1,800. $1,500 gave to the car dealer. Say, take. We are paying $1,500 for this car. When the car dealer saw cash, he accepted. And we were baffled. We were full of thanks to God. Why? Because we placed a demand on the covenant commitment. God said, I will supply your needs. That couple said God spoke to them to buy us a car. And when we share our testimony with many people, they couldn't believe it that in this country somebody parted with 1,500 bucks and they've not known you for more than two weeks. That must be God. Do you believe? That must be God. <laughs> so we don't have a car payment. Then somebody blessed us with a truck again. That person said, I told God, Emmanuel needs a second car with his wife. If you bless me with a new truck, I will give him my truck. Two weeks after, God gave him a new truck. What did he do? He saw a seed. He said, God, if you give me a new truck, I will give Emmanuel my truck. So, by doing that, he placed a demand on God's provision. God, in two weeks, God provided a new truck for him. And he gave us his old one. So, what I'm saying is this. God is not Father Christmas. If so, there will be no people, there will be no hungry people in the, in the world today. God will not provide for you unless you place a demand on his provision power. God is not committed. Oh, don't let me say that. In his mercy, God provides for people, even when they don't ask him. In his message, he can heal some people even if they don't ask for it. But what I'm saying is this. Let me put it in a better way. God is not committed or God is not obligated to provide for you unless you place a demand on his provision power. God is not obligated to heal you unless you place a demand on his healing power. God is not obligated to protect you unless you place a demand on his provision of protection. God is sovereign. There are some things he does for you whether you ask him or not. But there are some level or some realm of the display of his power that will not happen in your life except you place a demand on this covenant provision that he made for you in that area. Maybe I'm still talking over your head. It will become clearer as we go on. Why did God part the Red Sea for the children of Israel? Is it because he just wanted to display his power? No. The reason why he parted the Red Sea was because he promised Abraham that he's going to deliver his children. So when the children of Abraham cried out to God, God parted the Red Sea for them. Does that make sense to you? God is not parting Red Sea for everybody. He parted the Red Sea because some people were his covenant relations and they placed a demand on his covenant power. Doesn't God know what you need? But why did God, Jesus told us, say, ask and it shall be given to you. Knock 
it shall be open to you. Seek, you shall find. Why doesn't he just give you what he knows that you need? He wants you to be responsible. He wants you to be a responsible individual. Does that make sense to you? He wants you to place a demand on what he has provided for you by covenant. And if you do it according to his covenant, he will provide for you. Let's go on. I will talk about that a little bit later. Let's look at four dimensions of understanding God and covenant. Am I making sense to anybody here tonight? One, God is a covenant-making God. God initiates and establishes covenants. God initiates and establishes covenants. God, I should say, God is the creator of covenants. God is the one that we initiate and establish a covenant. Abraham was just a pagan, an idol worshiper. But probably with a difference, seeking God, asking questions. Why do we worship idols? And God found him. And God called him. And God initiated a covenant with him. And God said, leave your people. You're already looking for me. Though you don't know what you're looking for. But leave your people. Leave your kindred. And go to a land that I will show you. And if you obey me, I will bless you. And anybody that blesses you is blessed. Anybody that causes you is cursed. You flame with me? God initiates covenants. And if you look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you can see different covenants that God made with different people. In Genesis 6.18, you can see where God made a covenant with Noah. And God told Noah, that was after the destruction, he said, I will never again destroy the world with water again, with flood. And God gave a seal or a sign of that covenant, the sign of the rainbow. Amen. Anytime there is a flood, there is a heavy rainstorm, what happens? The rainbow shows up. And that reminds God that God, you need to put a stop to this rainstorm right now so that the world will not be destroyed. And that will end the rain. Amen? God is also a covenant-keeping God. You see, God prides himself in the fact that he is faithful to his word, to his covenants. God says, I will not deny myself. My word I will keep. God will keep his words. So God is a covenant-keeping God. God does not forget, neither is he negligent of his covenant commitments to you. God is a covenant revealing God. God makes covenant with us and he reveals those covenant to us so that we can take bare advantage of it. Amen. You see, assuming your dad, your great granddad is a multi-billionaire, but you never knew it. And the man has put a million dollars $10 million dollars in a bank account for you with the instruction that you must not know about it until you are 18. Right? And you are, you are living your life like a pauper. Right? Because your parents died when you were young and somebody stole your father's estate. 
But meanwhile, your granddad already puts 10 million bucks in a bank account somewhere, and the instruction is that you must not know about it until you are 18. Assuming you are now 21, and the bank forgets to tell you, right? But the money is still sitting there. You won't be able to take advantage of it. Right? Until one day a letter arrives from the bank saying you have an inheritance of $10 million. Then you can begin to take advantage of it. Same way, God has put some treasures in some secret places for us. And those treasures are called his covenants. And his covenants are beneficial to us. And if you don't know those benefits, you won't be able to take advantage of it. Does that make sense to you? There are so many things, there are so many privileges that are available to Americans. But it amazes me that many Americans don't take advantage of it because of lack of knowledge. They don't know it. And some people will keep it from you. And they will make money off you. By telling you, if you sign up to this particular program, we show you how to get houses with zero money down. And they will tell you, subscribe to this lesson for 250 bucks, And it has eight series parts. All they do is they do research. They know what the loss of the land has made available to you. But because of your ignorance, you don't know it. So they gather it together. They put it in their book and they make you pay for it. But at the end of the day, it's that free thing that you are still making use of. And that's how the devil has made many Christians. Makes you to pay for what is already yours. Amen. But when we know the covenants that have been made available to us, God reveals them to us. Then we can take advantage of them. Lastly, God is a covenant enabling God. You see, without the enabling grace of God, man has been known not to be able to keep any covenant. Have you been in a situation before whereby you gave your promise to somebody, I will do this. Then after a while you discover you can't do it because there was a change in your situation. How many people have been in that situation? There's a change in the situation. Maybe you promise, I'll be giving you 50 bucks a month. As at that time, you are making 500 bucks a month. Then you lose, you lost your job. <laughs> and you're making zero dollar a month. There's no way you can keep that commitment. Right? But God is a covenant enabling God. God will give you the ability to still be able to keep your commitment of giving that 50 bucks. Despite the fact that you have no job. God is able to enable you to keep his words if deep down in your heart you want to keep it. God is able to enable you to live a righteous, sinless life if you commit your heart to him. Because on your own, you cannot do it. How many people remember New Year resolutions? Say from the beginning of January 1st, 2006, I won't smoke again. You were able to keep it for three days. On the fourth day, you say, okay, just one stick. <laughs> By 31st of January, 
Maybe you are smoking a pack before. Because of that three days that you missed it, you are now smoking three packs. <laughs> Why? Because man is not able to keep his words. So we need the enabling grace of God to keep covenants. Amen. Let's move on. So let's look at some specific characteristics of uh, divine covenants. We can see here that what is a divine covenant? You know, I've spoken about different kinds of covenants. They come down with a cardinal, they come down with husband and wife, they come down different kinds of covenants. But when we talk about a divine covenant, we are talking about a covenant that has God as the originator, as the central focus, and as the umpire or referee. A covenant becomes a divine covenant if it was God that established that covenant or initiates that covenant. If God remains at the, the central focus of that covenant and if God is a referee or the umpire of that covenant. Let me explain what I mean. For instance, it was God that instituted the marriage covenant. Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Adam does not even know that he was alone. But it was God that pointed out to him that he was alone. And God said, it's not good for you to be alone. So God made a wife for him. So God conducted the first wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. So God is the initiator, the originator of that covenant. And in a marriage covenant, in a Christian marriage covenant, God must become the central focus of the marriage. Or else that marriage will fall apart. Amen. I remember my pastor drew this triangle for us. You see, the marriage, marriage relationship is like a triangle. You know what a triangle is? At the apex, up there is God. At the base end is the man. At the other end is the woman. You see, if the man moves up, towards God he comes closer with his wife if both of them keep moving upwards in their relationship with God they get closer with each other and if for any reason they separate themselves from God they begin to draw apart from themselves so for a marriage to be successful even Christian marriage God must be the central focus. Both of you must be looking up to God. And the more you look up to God, the closer both of you becomes in your relationship with each other. Does that make sense to you? So that means God must be the central focus of your marriage. Then we say that God must be the umpire or the referee. What does that mean? When your spouse does something that offended you, can take it to God. Like if my wife does something I don't like, I'll go to God. Say, Lord, see what your daughter has done. That's why the Bible says that do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because if you marry an unbeliever, do you know what you've done? Satan automatically becomes your father-in-law. When you marry an unbeliever, somebody who is not saved, 
Satan becomes your father-in-law. And who wants Satan for his father-in-law? You are asking for trouble. Because Satan will stir up his daughter or his son to torment you. Does that make sense? But when you marry a believer, who is God's will for your life? God becomes your father-in-law. I know there are people talk about in-laws, but there are some very good in-laws that they can bring their son or their daughter to order when they are misbehaving. So when you report your spouse to your father-in-law, who is God Almighty, maybe when she's praying to God, God will talk to her. My daughter, don't you know that you are not supposed to be talking to your husband in that manner? God, the Holy Ghost, will convict her and she will repent. And on her own accord, she will come back and say, Darling, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have spoken the way I spoke. I'm sorry. I lost it. I dropped the ball. Please forgive me. But if she was an unbeliever, she said, To hell with you. <laughs> and she can even give you a beating or throw a knife at you or pull something at you. But when the Holy Ghost convicts her in her prayer time, on her own accord, she's convicted, she repents, and God will say, go and apologize to your husband. And she'll go. And she does that. So a divine covenant is a covenant that God initiates. God remains the central focus, and God is the referee or the umpire. What, what does an umpire do? In a football game, when there's a foul, the referee or the umpire blows the whistle, stops the game, and awards a penalty. God should be the umpire of your marriage. And it's very easy for married couples to lose focus of God in their marriage and their marriage falls apart. Don't let that be your portion in Jesus' name. Say amen to that. Hallelujah. Now, when talking about divine covenants, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are involved in a divine covenant. God the Father is the originator, the maker, the keeper, the revealer, and the enabler of covenants. God the Son is the one that gave us the sacrifice of a covenant by his blood. It covers when you contravene the terms of the covenant. The blood of Jesus protects you when you repent. The judgment is averted. The wrath of God is stopped. It's seized upon your life when you repented. And God the Holy Ghost is the seal of the covenant. Amen. So all the eight elements or the constituent of a covenant is provided between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost in a divine covenant. So the next thing is this. How do you establish a covenant relationship? You enter a covenant relationship when somebody who originates a covenant calls you or invites you to participate in that covenant relationship. Does that make sense to you? You are called. You are told. You are informed about a covenant commitment and you are invited. When you respond to it and you agree to it, then you enter into that covenant relationship. For instance, I just received in the mail, uh, many times I've received in the mail, a beautiful postcard that is shaped in the form 
of a SUV. And it comes from maybe State Avenue, Cadillac, or Ford. And they will tell you, you have been pre-selected <laughs> to buy a pre-honed Chevy SUV. No money down. How do they call it? 100% financing. What are they doing? They are inviting you to come and enter into a covenant with them. Covenant of car payments. <laughs> and if you agree, I remember one came at the time that we were having a problem with our car. <laughs> and I told my, my wife, no, it came at the time that we really need that two car before God spoke to somebody to give us a truck. And I told my wife, let's go check it out. Do I know I can't afford a car payment? And my wife is supposed to car payments. <laughs> so let's believe God. But we still went and we saw everything. And we decided not to enter the covenant. All right? A brother can look at you, say you're looking so beautiful and calls you to enter into a married covenant with him. Will you marry me? And you can consider, let me go pray about it. And when you pray, if you are convinced that that's the will of God for your, for your life, say yes. And if you are not, say no. Does that make sense? So what I'm trying to say is that you establish covenant relationship because somebody originates a covenant and invites you. When you agree, then you enter into a covenant. God will respect a marriage covenant, even if a believer marries an unbeliever. God will still recognize that marriage. Does that make sense to you? And you must still fulfill your marital obligation to that man or to that woman, even if they are unsaved. Because the marriage covenant itself was established by God, and God backs up everything he establishes. Even if you enter it wrongly, you will suffer the consequences, though. Does that make sense to you? Amen. And once you enter into a covenant relationship, you are bound to keep the terms of the covenant. You are bound to keep the terms of the covenant. And let me say this. Covenant relationships are entered into by faith and in obedience. Maybe God shows you somebody, he said, that will be your future husband or your future wife. And from your whole imagination of who your wife or your spouse should be, that person doesn't fall into it. <laughs> you know, we have a picture in our mind of who, whom we want to marry. And maybe God is showing you somebody that falls outside of those characteristics. And you know that God has spoken to you. Then you have to go into it by faith and in obedience. So what I'm saying in essence is this. Nobody can be committed to a faithful covenant relationship, can be faithful to a covenant relationship without faith and without depending on the grace of God. I've said here that God is a covenant enabling God. God enables you to be able to keep your part of a covenant. He empowers you, gives you the grace to do whatever sacrifice is needed to keep that relationship going. Amen. So the next question is this. We've been talking about covenant, 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 covenant. 
Why do we need to make a covenant if it's a deal? If, if it's a big deal? So let's look at the purpose of a covenant. Why do we need to have a covenant relationship? We can see that even the Bible itself is a book of covenants. So that means that God operates only by covenants. And the general purpose of a covenant is this. A covenant provides a binding sense of commitment to an interpersonal relationship. A covenant provides a binding sense of commitment to an interpersonal relationship. Why do we have to go through the hazards of a wedding ceremony? Do you know the reason why? The spouse or the other partner wants an assurance that you won't ditch them mid midstream. If two people are living together and they are not married, what is the guarantee that if the other guy goes nuts the, other, the, the next day, that he won't pack his baggage and leave? Does that make sense to you? If there's no wedding between the two people, if they are not married legally, then there's nothing binding the man and the woman to be committed to each other. So they can decide to ditch each other when they're going guest off. Does that make sense to you? But when they are married and God is in that marriage, what do they do? They will stick it out together in time when, it is, when things are going good and when things are not going good. They will stick it out together because they know they are bound together. So a covenant brings a sense of commitment to an interpersonal relationship. Let me just give you one example. There's this wonderful story in the Bible. I want to go and read it. It's called the story of, the, of Joshua and the Gibeonites. In the book of Joshua, chapter 9, verse 1 to 27, then in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel, verse chapter 21, get home and read it. What happened was this. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were about taking possession of the land of Canaan, God gave them an instruction. Every nation in the land of Canaan that you come across, you must destroy them completely. Don't spare them. The reason is this. They are idol worshippers. If you spare some of them, after a while, they will influence you to worship idols. So God says, destroy them. Now, there was this particular nation somewhere in the land of Canaan that the children of Israel are going to be attacking in a few days. They call them the Gibeonites. What they did was this. They've heard so much about how God destroyed Egypt because of the Israelites. They've heard how God parted the Red Sea for them. They saw how they've defeated other nations. And these people do not want to die because they're a small nation. So what did they do? They came to the children of Israel before they got to them. And they pretended as if they were coming from a far nation. And they came to make peace with them. They said, make a covenant of peace with us. We've heard how good your God is to you. And we fear your God. Make a peace with us that you won't fight us, that our 
friends will be your friends, your enemy will be our enemies, and we'll be together. And Joshua, as a head of Israel as at that time, did not remember to consult God whether they should go into that covenant. They just signed the covenant papers. <laughs> After about five days, they discovered that those people were from <laughs> very close by. And God had previously instructed them to destroy them. So because of their covenant, they could not destroy the Gibeonites. So Joshua and the children of Israel were so mad. The children of Israel particularly were so mad at their leader. But their leader says, sorry, it's a mistake. We should have asked God. And God says, sorry, you can't kill them now. Because you made a covenant with them. You see, when you make a covenant, even with an unbeliever, God recognizes that covenant. So when you break your covenant, even with an unbeliever, God will punish you for it. Does that make sense? Now, about three or four generations after Joshua, when Saul became the king of Israel, what did he do? He went and attacked the Gibeonites that they have entered into covenant with about three or four generations previously. Do you know what God did? We said a divine covenant is a covenant that God is the central focus and the umpire. God just blew a whistle in heaven. Foul. <laughs> there was a foul. And God awarded the penalty. What happened? When David became the king of Israel, there was a famine for three years. No rain anywhere on the land of Israel. First year, they thought it was a joke. Second year, they said, this is getting serious. The third year, they were almost dying. So David went to the Lord to ask, Lord, what's happening? And God said, the reason why I've sent a famine is a judgment. Because Saul fought and destroyed the Gibeonites that you guys made a covenant with that you won't attack them. So David said, okay, we have to appease the Gibeonites. So he called the Gibeonites and said, we are sorry. We contravened the covenant our fathers made with you. What should we do to appease you? And the Gibeonites said, give us seven sons of Saul because it was Saul that really attacked us. And we will kill them. Then our annoyance will be with seas. And they did that. And what happened? Rain came. Does that make sense? The reason why the Gibeonite could be secure until Saul attacked them was because they know that the Israelites, they fear God and any covenant they have with God is binding. Does that make sense? So the general purpose why we enter into covenants is because we want to provide a binding sense of commitment to an interpersonal relationship. And when you get home, you can study all the other scriptures that tells you about different kinds of covenants that are made between different people in the, in the scriptures. That's the general purpose of a covenant. Then the specific purpose of a covenant is for the expansion of the kingdom of God through the local church. The expansion of the kingdom of God through the local church. That's the reason why we have covenants. You see, covenants are the vehicle of expression of God's will and purpose for man. And it's the, it is the effective means by which the will of God is fulfilled. What do I mean by that? When Jesus was going, he said, go into all the worlds and preach the gospel. In another portion of scripture, he said that 
lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Right? What gives us the confidence to go out and preach on the street corner is because God has committed himself that when we preach the gospel, he will back us up. Why do we go into the hospital and lay hands on the sick? It's because he has given us his word that when we lay hands on the sick, they will recover. Why do we pray to God? It's because he has promised us by his covenant word that when we pray, he will do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask, hope, or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. So the purpose of covenant, the specific purpose of covenant, is to expand the kingdom of God. Why should we expect God to heal people in church? It's because God has said he is the Lord our physician and that he will not allow any of the diseases on the Egyptians to come upon us. Why should we expect that none of our members will die brutal death? It's because he has promised us that he has given his angels charge over us to encamp around us and they will shield us from every evil. Amen. And when we begin to call upon the name of God, when we begin to call upon the covenant, when we begin to place demands on the covenants of God, then the power of God begins to manifest in our lives and in the lives of the believer. And by so doing, we expand the kingdom of God. Many people have come to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ simply because somebody lay hands on them and they became healed of their sicknesses. Many people have come to the Lord Jesus Christ because they have a terrible situation in their life that no man can help them and somebody prayed with them and that situation was reversed and therefore they believed and therefore they came to the kingdom. By so doing, when you, when you place a demand on the covenants of God, we use it to expand the kingdom of God. If you have any lack or any need in your life tonight, do you know why? It's because you are yet to place a demand on God's covenant in that area of your life. Everything we need, he has provided. Everything you will ever need, he has provided. You see, <laughs> the Bible says, Paul was writing to, I think, the Thessalonians. He said, if any man is unable to provide for his own household... He has denied the faith and he is worse. He is worse than an infidel. Right? If any man is not able to provide for his own household, he has denied the faith and he is worse than an infidel. I'm here to tell you tonight that God is not an infidel because we are members of the household of God. So if you are having lack in your house, what your lack is saying is that God is not able to provide for you and that is not true. Because God has provided everything that you will ever need. The Bible says that he has given us everything that pertains to life and to godliness. Everything you will ever need to live a godly life and everything you will ever need to live a comfortable life, he has made available for you. And if you are not enjoying it, it's not because he has not provided it. It is because you are not placing a demand on the provisions of God. God is not a father Christmas. He said, ask and you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be given to you. It will be opened to you. So if you are not asking, you will not receive. If you are not knocking, it will not be opened to you. 
If you are not seeking, you won't find. Does that make sense to you? So how can you ask? Many people ask and they don't receive. Do you know why? Because they ask amiss. They don't know how to ask. They don't know what they are asking for. So how do you know what you are asking for? Go into the book of the covenant. If you have a need, in fact, I'm going to give us an assignment here tonight. You see, I'm a scientist. I'm a medical scientist. And what we do in science is that we propose a theory or uh, we propose a, an hypothesis and we put some experimentation into place to see if it will prove or disprove our hypothesis. So let us put the covenants of God to test if it is true or not. If this book of covenant is not true, let us close and go home. And don't let us bother to come to church. If it's not true, if this Bible is not true, then why waste your time come to church? But if this word is true, and I know that I know that I know that it is true, then why are we not seeing the evidence in your lives? Why are you not seeing the evidence in my life? That means, if this is true, then this is not the problem. God is not the problem. So where is the problem? You. Does that make sense to you? So what that calls for is this. The assignment I'm going to give you is this. If you have any need in any area of your life, I want you to go into the book of the covenant and search out where God promised you in this book that it will give you that thing that you lack in your life. And begin to show God in prayer. Say, Lord, have you not said in your word according to Psalm so, so, and so, verse so, so, and so, that if I have this need and I call upon you, that you will respond? Lord, have you not said in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter this, chapter this, that if I have this need and I call upon you, that you will? Have you not said, how, how, how do lawyers win their case in the law courts? They have a client who has a bad case. But if the lawyer is good, that client will go scot-free. Do you know why? Because that person will go into the book of the law of the lands, of the land, and it will convince the judge or the jury why his client should be let loose. Why his client is not guilty. Is that okay? This is the book of the law. This is the book of the law. Go into this book and begin to search out the covenants that God has made with you. Let me give you a very simple covenant that operates in the life of Christians, whether you know it or not. You know, when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said, Abraham, leave your kindred, leave your people, and go to a land that I will show you. And he said, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. Then God said, if anybody blesses you, that person I will bless. And if anybody curses you, that person I will curse. Alright? That is to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now, that 
promise, that covenant is to Abraham and his children after him. You flowing with me? Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh came through the lineage of Abraham. You flowing with me? Now that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we all have inherited the promises of Abraham. Does that make sense to you? That means that the covenant that God made with Abraham many thousands years ago is now available and is operating in your life right now, whether you know it or not. What does that mean? It means Emmanuel. If anybody blesses you, God will bless. If anybody curses you, God will curse. Now, take note. It didn't say if an unbeliever blesses you, you will be blessed, and if an unbeliever curses you, you will be cursed. He said, anybody. What of if another Christian brother is cursing me? What will happen to him? He will be cursed. What of if another Christian brother blesses me? What will happen to him? He will be blessed. That's a covenant that I have with God, that you have with God. So, you see, the problem is this. When you don't know that a, such a covenant exists, and you backbite your brother and your sister, you are putting a curse on yourself. And many people are walking in curses today, and they don't have a clue why they are walking in the problem they are walking in. It's because you are backbiting. It's because you are telling tales and rumors about your brother and sister in Christ. It's because you are using your mouth to say some terrible things against your brothers and sisters in Christ and you are attracting causes to your life though you are a Christian. Does that make sense to you? You see, we wanted to take advantage. Look at, uh, I gave you a testimony. A brother said, Lord, if you give me a new van or a new truck, I will bless Emmanuel with my whole truck. And what did that God did? Because that guy in his heart blessed me what did God do? God blessed him. Covenant. You see, I don't care when people say bad things about me. Do you know why? You see, anywhere that anybody mentions my name, God goes there. Say, ah, what are you saying about Emmanuel? He's my son. God will listen. If it's a blessing, God will bless them. If he's cursing, God will deal with them. Does that make sense with you, to you? Covenant. I'm not afraid. Why? If God be for us, who can be against us? He said, 10,000 may fall on my right hand side and a thousand on my left. He said, I will not be afraid for it shall not come near me. Do you see? I used to say this. It's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. But I make my boast in the Lord. Not in me. I used to say this. I cannot be involved in a road traffic accident. It won't happen. Somebody said, you are crazy. How can you make such a statement? The reason why I can be bold to make such a statement is because 
there was a time in my country, Nigeria, I was traveling about from one end of the country to the other, and there are so many road traffic accidents to the extent that every time I want to enter the bus, I am in fear. And the devil will bombard my mind. This is your last trip. You won't come back alive because you're going to die in an accident. And one day I just came to the realization I can't continue to live in fear because I need to travel. Then I went to the book of Psalms 91. Come with me to the book of Psalms 91. And I begin to read and study the book of Psalms 91. Psalms 91 verse 1. It says, He who dwells, are you there? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowl and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. And you shall not be afraid of terror by night nor the harrow that flies by the day nor the pestilence that walks in darkness nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand on your right hand but it shall not come near you only with your eyes you will see the rewards of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil, say no evil. No evil shall befall you, nor any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample under your foot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him, says the Lord. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. Here I am. With long life, he said, I will deliver him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You say, as I began to reach Psalm 91, and I came to verse 11 and verse 12, it jumped out at me like a revelation. He said, for he has given his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. One, two. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Then it just occurred to me, if I'm involved in a road traffic accident, there will be stones that the car will hit upon. Or there will be concrete that will scratch the car. Is that okay? And I just imagine myself that as I'm traveling, God has dispatched his angels. And as the car is moving, the angels are bearing, they are carrying that car or the, or the bus up in their hands. And there's no way because the bus or the plane I'm flying in is in the hands of the angels. So it cannot dash. I cannot be dashed against a stone. And after meditating so much on this scripture, I came to the conclusion, I cannot be involved in a road traffic accident. It's not because I'm holy. 
It's not because I'm righteous. It's because he made a covenant commitment to me that as long as you set your heart upon me, I will give you my angels charge over you. They shall bear you up and you shall not dash your feet against a stone. And let me tell you folks, there are so many times that I could have been involved in a road traffic accident, even in this Kansas City, that it was just a miracle. A, a good example, there was one night I was driving to church to come and help to clean the church. It was snowing, I didn't know it. And it was not just an ordinary snow, it was a high sea tide. And I was coming down on 635. And just at the junction of 635 and that bridge that crosses uh, into Argentina, there was a semi-truck that was going in front of me. I was coming behind on the middle lane. It was on the far right lane. Then it was throwing up the highs. And the highs fell on my windshield. And it froze. And I could not see a thing. And it was in the night. And I slammed the brake. And my car turned. For a moment, I was just expecting to hear a crash sound. Bah, 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 bah. After a split second, I opened my eyes. The car stopped. And I rolled down the window. My car just made a turn like this, facing the covert. It didn't touch it. Because God has given his angels. There was no reason why my car should not slam into the divider. There was no reason why that car should have been stopped except because he has given his angels charge over me to bear me up in their hands lest I dash my feet against a stone or a concrete. There are so many instances I can give you. There was a time I was joining 635. You, you know about what it uh, what we call blind spot. I look at the mirror, I look at the side, I didn't see, and I was going from the third or the fourth lane to the first lane. I didn't see the car. I should have crushed that car to the wall, and both of us should have, we should have been a wreck. But miraculously, God averted it. Why? Is it because I'm righteous and holy? No. He is, I am his righteousness in Christ Jesus. It's not because I'm more godly or holier than you. It's because I've just discovered the covenants of God. And I put my trust in that word and I believe it. And that's why I can make that bold statement. I cannot be involved in a road traffic accident. And you see, when you begin to make a bold statement like this, the devil will come and test you. And he has tested me many times and God has been faithful to his word. Not because I'm holy. Not because I'm righteous. It's not even because I'm full of faith. Like I shared with you when we're looking at faith and prayer. What is faith? I say faith is just taking the word of God seriously. It's just because I decided to take this word seriously. Does that make sense to you? Listen, folks, it's to your benefits to know what the, the words of the covenant. It's to your benefits. So the assignment I'm giving you is this. 
look for an area of your life that you have a need. A short time, there's some need you have that will not be filled until maybe some years to come. Like for instance, if you are believing God to get married to somebody, are you ready for marriage? No, maybe it will take five years or less. All right? So that's a long-term faith goal. But maybe you need to pay your bills in the next one or two weeks and you don't have a means. Go into this book of the covenant. If you go to Psalms 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I hope you don't mind. We are going a little bit late. I hope you don't mind. Just a few more minutes. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall... Let's look at it together. I want you to experiment and find out to see for yourself that the Lord is true. That the word of God is true. If this word is true, let's enjoy it. And if it's not true, then let's close shop and go home. <laughs> Psalms 23. Psalms 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you have a bill you need to pay very soon, and you don't have a means to pay it, you can come and say, Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, because you have promised me that you are my Lord and my Savior. You are my shepherd. And you said in your word in Psalms 23, verse 1 and 2, that I will not lack anything good. Lord, I ask right now, right now, my fact, the fact of my situation is that I'm in lack. I need maybe $300 to pay this bill in the next one week, and I don't have a means to pay it. But your word promises me that you are my shepherd and I will not lack, and that you will supply my need, and I ask in the name of Jesus, according to your covenant words to me, that you will supply that need. Another scripture you can use is uh, Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. He says, And my God shall supply all your needs, all your need according to his riches in glory. He didn't say according to your salary. He didn't say according to your allowance. He didn't say according to your social security income. He says, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He says, somewhere I think in Psalms 37, he says, even the, even the young lions shall suffer lack. He said, but those that love God, they shall not lack anything good. Does that make sense to you? You see, when you begin to go into the word of a covenant and begin to look for specific covenants that promise you what God, what you need, and you begin to take it to God in prayer and remind him of his covenant commitment, God will release his power on your behalf. Are you guys excited that you have a covenant relationship with God? Those are the good sides of a covenant. And please, I want to encourage you. Take advantage of it. 
there are too many people in church that are not taking advantage of the things that God has provided for us. The negative side of a covenant is when you contravene the terms of a covenant. When you are backbiting your brother <laughs> and God will deal with you. What you can do with that is just repent and forsake your wicked ways. Amen. So remember, God is committed to his covenant words. And the power of God will be raised on your behalf only when you place a demand on him. Amen. Let's rise up on our feet tonight. Are you blessed tonight? Amen. Let's give God some praise tonight. Oh, Father, we bless you tonight. We give you praise to God. Father, we thank for your word that came tonight. We thank for utterance. We thank for understanding. Lord, I pray for your people and myself, oh God. We ask, oh God, that you would grant us a divine revelation of the power of your covenant. Lord, I pray for my brothers and my sisters here to, and my sisters here tonight, oh God. I ask, oh God, that they will become students of your word, oh God. That they will discover hidden treasures in your word that you have hidden for us from the from, from, from from long time ago, that we may walk in them and enjoy the benefits, even of your precious promises. Father, we thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.